every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. The administration of elections is primarily a state and local responsibility. Whether you voted for the very first time or waited in line for a very long time, by the way, we have to fix that. Welcome to High Turnout Wide Margins. We are really excited today to have David Levine, the Elections Integrity Fellow from the Alliance for Securing Democracy with us today. We're going to be talking about elections integrity, recent recommendation for a bipartisan commission to guide election reform in the future. And so we're really excited to welcome him to the show. So first, we always ask the question, how did you end up working as an elections administrator and now what you're doing? The way I came into elections was that in 2006, Cuyahoga County, Ohio, had a spring election that went poorly. There were concerns about how the election was administered. There were concerns around how equipment was procured. This was actually the last election that Cuyahoga County had to deploy new voting equipment so they could get the matching federal funds from the Help America Vote Act. And that no doubt contributed to some of the problems that the county had. And following the election, the county board decided to have a three-member commission look at what went right and what could be done better so that some of these problems wouldn't be replicated in future commissions. And the three commission members had the really bad idea of deciding that they needed grunt workers from law schools to help them with the research. And so I was brought on to help look at uh, a variety of legal and administrative problems related to the elections. And I loved it. And I've been doing election work ever since. Um, either with reform organizations, observing elections overseas, being a, a state and local election administrator in recent years, and, and now, of course, in my current role at ASD. The work that you're doing now, I'm sure, is helped by the fact that you have experience in elections and actually running elections. But what is it that you work on right now at the Alliance for Securing Democracy? I'm the Elections Integrity Fellow at ASD, and, and my work is to help ensure democratic countries, particularly democracies in Europe, have secure elections, right? Elections that are secured both from foreign threats, but also from domestic threats as well. And the way that, you know, my election work has has sort of informed me, I think is, I have, I think, a sense for some of the nuts and bolts and for some of the preparations that election officials have to make day in and day out so that they can conduct elections. And I think, you know, that knowledge came in as much handiness as it ever had, frankly, um, for the 2020 U.S. presidential election when election officials dealt with more challenges than I ever had to deal with as an election administrator before. In terms of what I'm working on right now, there are a few things, right? Number one, I'm talking with folks like you and others about the idea that me and my co-author, William T. Adler at the Center for Democracy and Technology have about having a bipartisan commission to restore trust. I'm also uh, working on a paper on how we can do a better job of recruiting and retaining skilled election administrators, particularly after what was experienced in the 2020 election. Uh, and I'm also looking at areas, again, where we can do things to try and enhance uh, further our conduct of elections. It's worth noting that in spite of all the mis- and disinformation, elections were conducted remarkably well considering all the challenges that existed. But that doesn't mean that there can't be things that can be sort of worked on. Uh, And so one of the things that I'm actually looking into is how we can provide more opportunities to observe elections here in the United States. Because I think if there were more opportunities for citizen observation and even potentially for international observers in some places, that could help enhance the integrity of the process 
and maybe demystify certain aspects of elections in those places where you know observation of elections may be a little bit more difficult. Your proposed commission, how do you propose to form it? I know President Obama appointed the Presidential Commission on Election Administration a number of years ago. I think overall that commission uh, it was a bipartisan commission and produced a report that I think was highly regarded within the election administration community. Obviously, President Trump appointed a commission dealing with some aspects of election administration, and they ended up dissolving without producing any final product. How would your commission be different, if at all? Who would appoint it, and what mechanism would there be to make sure it functioned and produced uh, an end product? Now, now, my commission that Will and I have proposed would be done by executive order from President Biden. You know, the president was obviously the vice president under President Obama, and I think he had an opportunity to see firsthand, right, just how successful that commission was. And, and I think there are some things that we could emulate uh, that could try and help ensure that it's successful, right? It should go without saying that it's difficult to find agreement, you know, but I think there are a couple of things that are really important. Number one, we have someone who I think believes, at least in President Biden, in an idea of trying to do things in a bipartisan way. And I think we can emulate um, that previous commission to achieve some of that. Part of this is about finding people to join the commission who have the necessary experience to tackle disinformation and misinformation. Um, and I think we need an above all approach to make sure that all of the actors that help ensure trust in our elections, not just election officials, but right, the social media platforms, members of traditional media, those at civic organizations and lawmakers, right, that we have people who can reach those communities. And so in that way, bringing on people with applicable experience in both the public and private sectors are important. That includes state and local election officials. I think it also includes people with national security experience who can understand and speak to the consequences and concerns around mis and disinformation. And I think that if you put the right people in place um, who are, who are well-meaning and that you have right, a research director to help guide this, again, like PCA had, I think there's an opportunity over a period of several months to conduct the hearings around the country to suss out some of the best ideas that arose from state and local election officials across the country and come out with something that I think can help ensure that we're in a better place several months from now than where we currently stand. I should also add that that doesn't mean that everyone else is waiting on this commission, right? There continues to be work that can be done and will be done, right, at the state and local level. But I think like with the PCA, there can be good ideas that come out of this commission, best practices that are identified that then local jurisdictions and Congress can help to pass and implement. And I think one last thing is important, which is uh, the widespread consensus that exists among state and local election officials as to what's needed to ensure the integrity of elections, right, gives me confidence that if we get the right group of people, that we could have some good recommendations and ideas for how we can help restore trust. You know, as Charles Stewart and others have spoken about, this issue goes back as far as the 2000 presidential election, and in fact has gone back and forth a little bit depending on which party has won the presidency. Obviously, in this case, we had somebody in the last election right, who was promoting a disinformation campaign, and so obviously this was worse, but this is an issue that we've seen for a long time, and I think this is something that can be done to help move the ball in the right direction. You mentioned if we get the right people on the, on the commission, one, I guess, how do we do that? And two, what types of people do you all envision being on a commission like this? So I think there are two things. You know, number one, my understanding is with the PCEA, for example, that it was White House lawyers in, in conjunction with 
um, a number of other stakeholders that helped pick, right, who made up the PCA. And, and, I, and I think those in the election administration community were largely happy about the representation. Um, we, you know, in our report, touch on the fact that we need state and local election officials. We need people who are experts on missing disinformation, people with national security experience. But, you know, I think what's also important is we need this commission to look like America. You know, I think that's, it's really important to be telling people like election officials and others that you need to be trying to amplify and put accurate information in front of people. But I think one of the questions that election officials and others have about this, about from the, from the 2020 election is, you know, how do we know what worked and didn't work? And, and I would hope that this commission would be able to have experts who could help get at that, whether it's, you know, again, someone, for example, maybe who was involved with the Election Integrity Partnership, um, which Matt Masterson talked about at the recent NASED meeting. You know, a, a couple other things are worth noting. One, we believe that there should be a Democrat and Republican um, that lead the commission, like the PCA did. You know, I think that's helpful in helping ensure that there's buy-in and acceptance of the ideas. It also helps ensure that we strive for common sense nonpartisan solutions and we help avoid the most controversial. Um, and I think, again, having a research director, right, who studies and has an understanding for the media, election security and election administration we, can be really helpful as well. We saw how the PCA was very much able to sort of find the right kinds of people to ultimately put together a report that had bipartisan buy-in and that ultimately allowed for many states and localities to adopt many of the recommendations. Those are some of the things that we talk about in the report. Your report also has some recommendations already for things that should be adopted, risk limiting audits and things like that. Is there a concern about any of the legislation that you're seeing already at the federal level that might not cover all of that or or maybe goes too far or is it more of a you know to build alliances and to try to get more buy-in to these things you think it would be better to do a commission we talk about three things this commission could look at and one of them to your point is about right validating the results and you know we give ideas about things that we ought to see wider adoption of and one of them is, is risk limiting audits it's not lost on me as a former election official how complicated those can be to adopt in terms of the technology and the manpower and the knowledge base. And that's part of the reason that the National Academy of Sciences gave a 10 year window, right, after the 2018 report to try and have risk limiting audits adopted across the country. But one of the things we saw in the 2020 election was that even those places that did risk limiting audits got a lot of pushback. If Georgia does what amounts to sort of a risk limiting audit, but frankly, of all the ballots because of the close narrow margin, and they do it three times and they get the kind of blowback and threats that they get, and there's a decrease in the amount of trust in elections, there's concern for me and my co-author and others that people may look at that experience and say, we don't need that. And that can't be the answer, right? I, you know, part of what this has to be about is risk limiting audits on their face are an excellent tool to help validate the outcome, but they're not the only tool. One of the things that I think was a real eye-opener for me, and I think for election administrators and others, is the th notion that for so long what we heard was, if you want to ensure that people trust the elections, just show them. Just do additional procedures, right? If, you, if you're more transparent and you adopt more procedures, then, you know, A plus B will get you C. And what clearly happened here is that's not the case. And so you have to take a more comprehensive approach. 
And election officials don't have the time nor the bandwidth, right, to do all of that. You are leaders and you have to know enough at some points to be able to bring in those people to help deal with things like, you have to know enough to bring in cyber experts to help you think about how you deal with cybersecurity vulnerabilities. And you have to be able at times to have mis and disinfo people to talk to about how to, how to help inform what kind of outreach you're going to do so you can reach people with regards to amplifying accurate information and combating mis and disinformation. And so for us, part of this is there, there is some federal legislation, I think, that, that, that may get at this a bit, right? There was some bipartisan federal legislation in the previous Congress that I'm hopeful could help move that ball in the right direction. But I wasn't even frankly thinking that far. I, I was in part frankly thinking about those places that have already adopted these measures and other places that are doing them. If those risk limiting audits ascertain and validate those results, people need to be encouraged by them. Um, and people also need to understand what they're there to do. I mean, the flip side of this is, let's say you do a risk limiting audit and it turns out in fact that you find that there were mistakes made. That would also be another reason to me why it's important to have them. Right? And I, what I can't stomach, and I don't think election officials can stomach, is that people see those kinds of efforts made and they take the wrong lessons from them. And so that's what this paper was sort of meant to be about is, you know, we ought to be validating and talking about additional measures and having real honest conversations about those measures and why they're important and how they can be done in a way to help ensure and restore confidence in the trust in our elections. I almost hesitate to ask because it's about kind of the third rail in election administration, and that's fraud and, and voter ID and things like that. And I know President Trump's commission centered a lot on that, or at least a lot was talked about that. How, if at all, do you prevent another commission from kind of devolving into just a tit-or-tat over the extent of fraud and whether or not there should be some kind of ID requirements and, and stuff like that. How do we keep it kind of away from that and over to the more nuts and bolts administrative stuff that folks like us um, focus on? I think there are two pieces, right? One is what you set out in the executive order. And that's part of obviously what this paper was about. I mean, you know, trying to look at, again, what I feel are hopefully in most cases, common sense, but nonpartisan things that can be done right, to help restore trust, you know, we touch on some of the simple things that have already begun to gain traction that we want to see more of, whether it's risk limiting audits, moving to .gov accounts, getting the check marks on social media accounts, right, those are sort of, you know, low, lower hanging fruit, but there's, I think, more of that kind of thing that can be done. The second thing is also about the, the membership of the commission, and I think there was a real effort made in the PCA to strive for that middle ground. That doesn't mean by its very nature that you don't sometimes go at it, you don't have to deal with controversial stuff. The nature of elections is such that, you know, that it's almost always hard to avoid any of that. But, but I, I do think, you know, we touch on the report that we would prefer not to deal, right, on, on the voter ID thing. That wasn't dealt with in PCEA. And I think we could probably safely avoid doing that here. And that's also part of the reason why I, we propose a commission that's initiated by a, a, an executive order from President Biden. Not only did he see firsthand right, how the PCA was successful and could emulate that and, and has, I think, the inclination to do so. But I'm concerned in Congress, based upon some of what we've seen in both the impeachment trial as well as some of the congressional commissions that have been proposed about the House and the Senate, that the issues you mentioned would become front and center and legitimize claims that are based on mis and disinformation. There also have been ideas put forward to use the private sector. And the private sector is also an interesting idea, 
But I think one of the, co the concerns from the, I think it was the Carter Baker Commission, which was a private commission, was they didn't have enough hearings. And so having a public hearing initiated by a presidential executive order, to me, will help ensure that we do enough outreach, and particularly in this climate, which I think is really important, to go all over the country to try and make sure that we're looking at, looking at these issues from every possible angle. But again, you know, nothing's perfect. And anyone who tells you that their idea for a commission is foolproof would be lying. But we thought this was the best thing on balance to try and move the ball forward from a, from a, from a bipartisan perspective. You know, I feel like there is at this point somewhat general consensus on things like having better audit procedures, the success of temporary reforms that a lot of states put into place, including Missouri, to expand absentee voting and, and generally just things that ended up making November successful, but we're seeing pushback. I mean, all of the news articles are, hey, this worked really well, but the state legislature is trying to roll it back. You know, you've been in this space for a while too. Do you think that there's been a shift? Do you think that this is how other reactions to elections? I mean, Missouri's law after HAVA passed pretty much mirrors what HAVA had and is a pretty good indication that there was general acceptance in Missouri that HAVA had good language and they could use that. But I don't know how, how likely that is to happen now if something were to pass at the federal level and then trickle down. What is the sense that you have since you're looking you know, across the board at all these places and, and internationally for, for what kind of climate we're in? To your point, we're in a tough climate. I mean, I think that is always a concern. Um, you know, one of the things that the PCA, and I don't mean to keep doing that because I think our commission is different, but it's just, it's an easy pivot point and it was a real success. So I keep coming back to it is that, you know, early voting and no excuse absentee voting were perceived as partisan issues. Uh, and in some cases had real question marks administratively and otherwise prior to the PCA. And, and one of the things that the PCA sort of looked at in part by talking to election officials across the political divide, across the country, was to sort of see that those kinds of measures not only were helpful from a voting access perspective, but they were helpful from an administrative perspective and they were helpful from an election security perspective. You know, people like Chris Krebs have spoken about, right, election access can lead to election security and election security can help with election access. Um, and that's, a, I think, a really important point. You know, the PCA spoke about how election administrators, you know, more opportunities to vote and expanded early voting could help make things easier on election day for election administrators instead of being nailed with a bazillion calls and, and any issues having a hard time being able to both identify and resolve them in a timely manner before the end of the voting process, right? It was easier to identify issues ahead of time, um, you know, but I think what we've seen is it's not only good from an election administration standpoint, but from a security standpoint as well. Clearly in 2020, even when we saw issues, let's say with electronic poll books going down during early voting, we saw jurisdictions being able to fix them quickly and of course, that was really helpful because if you're a voter and that happens, your only choice isn't necessarily standing in line, right? You, depending on where the jurisdiction is, you may either decide to wait in line, come to vote a different day. Maybe if you have, you're eligible to do so, vote by mail. And that's a, a really, really right, important, important point. The um, Iran Proud Boys attack in October, if that attack happened the day before a state had one day of voting, we could have been in a dramatically different place. Right? But by having more options to vote, longer periods of early voting, right? what you had was, I think, for many folks, a blip on the radar screen. And so it spoke to the need right, to have more options. 
I was just in a meeting the other day where somebody said one of the other advantages, not just security from a technical standpoint, but if somebody were to try to be committing fraud or doing something they weren't supposed to do, you have more time to catch it. There's more ways to catch it. And, you know, like you said, it kind of logistically mitigates the risk. I think that's actually how we've gotten so much consensus in terms of no excuse absentee and things like that, because administrators bipartisanly have seen that it has a bunch of benefits and very little downside. You know, I think part of what a commission can do is add some legitimacy and credence to something that some folks, unfortunately, for whatever the reason, have tried to put it into a partisan lens, whether it's absentee voting, whether it's early voting, whether it's election audits, right, where you're seeing, um, you know, the war over election audits play out in the state of Arizona um, and questions there with regards to it. So, you know, I think for me, part of what this commission can do is provide, um, you know, a bit of sort of a cushion and some political cover, right, so that, you know, folks can say, aha, we have this bipartisan commission of experts, maybe we ought to think about doing that too. You know, I think the other thing that's really important as well is that there might be a possibility that you know, this commission, the PCA was announced at the first State of the Union by Obama, I think 2013. If Biden were to announce this at his first State of the Union, he would have seen a number of the state legislative sessions. Um, and between those sessions, as well as what the PCA could do is they could be going around the country and talking to folks like you so that they could help figure out what ideas are good ones and which ones aren't. Because, you know, I think one of the things that's also important is in real time, we're beginning to see more ideas. You talk about risk limiting audits, I think that's a good one, but why don't we talk about vulnerability disclosure policies? Ohio, under Secretary of State Flanka Rose, came out with a vulnerability disclosure policy. Clearly, there are more states looking in that direction, but I think clearly that kind of thing, if done right, can enhance election security. And I think that may be the kind of thing that maybe right can get some more circulation and examination from the right group of experts, and a presidential commission could take a look at it. You know, we put out, you know, obviously some ideas, but they're not exhaustive. They're illustrative. You know, Will and I both understand some of these things may be the things that we were thinking of top of mind, but there are other things that either now or maybe three or six months from now are other things that this commission ought to dig more into. That's part of the reason why we think this commission ought to exist. You know, there are others that are putting out interesting ideas for commissions as well. And I'd be being not nice if I didn't also think of them, right? Belfort Center came out with a report uh, looking for a commission, and they had an idea of how only, I think, local election officials, but how to counter disinformation, right? That was a recommendation that came out for them. We know that the, the National Task Force on Election Crises uh, had a thought on a, on, a, a um, on a commission that I think would be funded by Congress that would sort of, or, or at least a, I think a congressional commission that would look at, you know, issues related to missing disinformation. Uh, we know that former CISA director Chris Krebs is, is leading a commission um, with the Aspen Institute, you know, I do think there are a number of entities with some good, smart folks that are thinking through this kind of stuff. And I do hope that, you know, for those folks, whether it's, you know, election officials or frankly, anyone else who's involved in helping ensure the trust of elections um, is, is, is looking at these papers, providing feedback and asking tough questions. Because the last thing I want is to have a commission that's going to spend a lot of time and money and kick up a lot of dust and not do anything. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of High Turnout, Wide Margins, and a big thanks to David Levine for being our guest today. Hope everybody can tune in next time for another great episode of High Turnout, Wide Margins.